I'm Margaret Feinberg, and this is the Joycast. Hi, friends. Welcome to another episode of the Joycast, the hap, hap, happiest half hour of your week. As always, I'm your host, Margaret Feinberg, amateur tortilla maker and author of Taste and See, Discovering God Among Butchers, Bakers, and Fresh Food Makers. Today, we're going to talk about something that may be a little uncomfortable, but it's something we can't avoid because many of us experience this when we come to the table, and that is shame. Now, some of you may be thinking, I thought this was the joy cast. Why are you being such a downer? But today is not going to be a downer episode because shame is really an obstacle to experiencing the fullness of joy around the table. And we're going to give you the tools you need to overcome it. You see, when it comes to mealtimes, my own experience of shame began at an early age. I was put on my first diet when I was nine years old. I was always the round one. I remember one day a classmate made a cutting comment about my large backside. And I don't know how large a backside can really be when you're in fifth grade, but I remember feeling so much shame. I would do everything I could so that no one would stand behind me. I would go to the back of the classroom, the back of every line. You see, as a kid, I was always hungry. And at the table, it felt like I could never eat enough to get full. And like many of us, I've carried those childhood wounds into adulthood. And sometimes I feel shame after enjoying a meal. Did I eat too many carbs, too little protein, too much fat, not enough vegetables? And suddenly this culinary experience with people I love, it's transformed into an opportunity to judge myself harshly. Over the years, I've heard from so many of you who have recounted similar stories of shame. We live in a world with countless fad diets, constantly bombarded with photoshopped images. And when we look in the mirror, we feel shame. That is, if we can muster the courage to look in the mirror at all. Yep, from the book of Isaiah to the book of Romans, as the people of God, we are instructed not to be ashamed. We are fearfully and wonderfully made precious creations fashioned in the image of God and objects of our Creator's love. So to fully experience the joy of the table, many of us, we have to break out to make an escape from the prison of shame. And I can't think of a better person to do that with than Michelle Cushit, author of I Am, a 60-day journey to knowing who you are because of who he is. Not only is she a master wordsmith, wise beyond her years, and someone who has experienced the kind of heartbreak and hardship that most of us, we could never imagine. So in this raw interview, she gets real. She is vulnerable, and she describes her own experiences with shame and how despite all of these obstacles, she has found a way to reclaim the joy that God wants for her when she sits at the table. One of my favorite parts of the interview is when she offers the seven words that you can speak to shatter shame. So pull up a chair at our table. You don't want to miss this interview. 
Hey, Michelle, I am so excited to have you on the Joycast. Um, oh, likewise. I've been looking forward to this, Margaret. Oh, when Leif and I lived in Denver, I remember you and I were friends and we would go on these long, glorious, gorgeous walks together and we would laugh and talk <laughs> and share our lives and our stories. Um, Absolutely true. In fact, I'm, I'm still a little peeved at you for moving away. It's not fair. <laughs> Well, we have to make a commitment that no matter what, when I'm in Colorado, we will sneak out for a walk. And when you come to Utah, which you need to come skiing, yes, we will sneak out on those walks again. Perfect. I love it. It's a date. Yeah. So one of the things um, that we talked about on those long walks was not just our, I mean, laughing and giggling and uh, just life, but also we we would share our struggles and Mm -hmm. our heartache, um, especially because both of us have battled cancer and and I, I'm pretty passionate about this, and I know you are too, but um, I believe that no two cancers are the same. Agreed. Yes, very, very true. You know, just like no two divorces or illnesses or battles with infertility. Some people will be like, oh, you know, I've had that or I've done that or been there, done that. And, and there's this there's this sense that that none of these are exactly the same. And I think, mm-hmm. I think you share that 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 truth as well. Yeah, and I think that's one of the things I valued about our time together is that we made space for each one of us to have different journeys, but then we found points where we could connect and kind of, uh, uh, I guess, make each other feel a little bit less alone in our very unique journeys. Yeah, that is, I think, the secret sauce of that time together is that we both allowed each other to be on our own journey, but we didn't let each other do it alone. Yeah, and there were those points of continuity. Um, and I know that no matter what the pain or what the loss that that some of maybe our listeners are facing, I think that in our time together today, they're going to find some points of continuity with you today. And so I wanted to see if you would be willing to share just maybe a brief overview uh, for our listeners, um, uh, just about your cancer, maybe your treatment and where you are today. And, and most importantly, I want you to share what you feel comfortable sharing. All right. Well, uh, I will give the very fast version of this because the truth is, is I was first diagnosed with cancer back in 2010, so eight years ago, which is kind of hard for me to believe that I've been on this cancer journey for almost a decade now, which is crazy to me. Uh, In that eight years since the initial diagnosis, I've had cancer three different times. And my specific variety of cancer is squamous cell carcinoma of the tongue. So cancer of the tongue, which I have to tell you, I didn't even know existed before I was diagnosed with it. I had no idea that you could get cancer in your tongue, in your mouth like that. It was so random, so freaking unexpected. In fact, the doctors never believed in a million years that that would be where I would end up. So over the course of the last eight years, I've had cancer of the tongue three different times. I've had well over a dozen different surgeries and procedures. I've gone through pretty extensive chemotherapy, external radiation, as well as internal radiation, which is called brachytherapy, where they basically inject radiation directly into your tongue, into your mouth. Uh, And uh, my most recent surgery was four years ago. It was actually a nine-hour surgery where they had to go in and take out two-thirds of my tongue. In addition, they uh, cut open my arm from wrist to elbow to take out blood vessels and tissue to rebuild my tongue. They did another graft in my leg, another uh, six or eight-inch incision in my neck to take out 
uh, lymph nodes and vessels and tissue, as well as my submandibular gland. Basically, I was Humpty Dumpty and they had to put me back together again. Mm. Uh, mm. And once that surgery was done, then that's when they really threw the kitchen sink at me with chemotherapy and radiation. And they've told me that that they basically didn't hold back. They gave me everything they possibly could. They took me to the brink of death. And then I've spent the last four years trying to come back to life. Mm -hmm. Uh, What's perhaps the most difficult, not perhaps, I know for a fact, what's been the most difficult for me and where I'm at right now is living with uh, this ongoing physical disability as a result of what I endured. So Speaking is very difficult for me. Eating, drinking, talking, swallowing, breathing, uh, anything related to my mouth and my throat uh, is is extremely difficult. It's painful. It requires extra intention. And then there's this measure of, of even shame, humiliation, whatever you want to call it, because I look and sound different than I did before. Mm-hmm. And so I can't hide that. Right? So I go into public and if I speak or even doing this podcast or if I sit and have dinner with people, which we eat with others, right? that's kind of what we do, uh, I can't hide the fact that my body is broken and doesn't work the way it's supposed to. And that sense of otherness and separation and awareness of my limitations has proved a, a different sort of suffering that's been very difficult. I, I have, I'm sorry. I have tears in my eyes right now. Uh in some ways, because I think I can, I, I relate. I, it's very different. Um, I, I don't think, I don't think people talk about this a lot, but there is a sense that people, people are so eager for you to be done with treatment of seeing the doctors that they assume once that last chemotherapy or once that last surgery is done, you're done. And, and you're just going to bounce back to life a hundred percent, no problems. And that's not reality. And I don't, I don't know that I've ever shared this before, but for me, I know after my chemotherapy and lumpectomy and double mastectomy and radiation, um, I can't feel a third of my torso on the front. And mm-hmm. so literally I can lean over a stove and catch on fire and I wouldn't know it. Uh, just just a couple of weeks ago, I got a new bathing suit. It was time. And um, and I, I know, right? Like you're like, uh, I think you could personally see through this because the chlorine has eaten through it. You know that moment? You're like, ah, save me. And so, um, so I get this new suit and I start swimming laps because I try to go to the pool maybe three to five times a week. And one night, Leif looks at me and says, what happened to you? And I'm, I'm thinking, what are you talking about? And he says, you have lesions on your chest. And I look down and there are literally open sores from the chafing of the new bathing suit. And I, I hadn't even noticed it. Yes. I've had that happen. So my right arm that they cut open has no feeling. It's, they cut a nerve. So I have a lot of nerve damage and, uh, and there was one day I was working at my computer. And I looked down, and there was blood on my laptop and it's, I mm. cut my arm and didn't realize it. <laughs> that same idea. And it's, it's this awareness that, uh, your body is not entirely in your control. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And maybe it was for most of our lives. And so there's this physical damage, but I think something else you touched on was that sense of the emotional damage, because once I get out of the pool, I too feel shame in the sense that. I don't want the other people in the locker room after I swim to see me naked. Um, and it just, it raises too many questions to too many people saying what happened, 
or that awkward moment with a stranger that I just, I don't really want to open myself up to, or that, I mean, I'll just be honest, like the little girls in the locker room, mommy, what happened to her? Mm-hmm. You know, because yeah. my body doesn't look like everyone else's. Um, and I realized, I didn't realize uh, until after the cancer, I didn't realize I have never seen a woman in a locker room who had a double mastectomy or lacked nipples. And I remember on one of our long talks, you, you know, you shared about the shame around the table and the difficulty of eating because the food and the liquid would literally kind of, it, it would come out of your mouth and, and you couldn't feel it. You couldn't, you couldn't mm-hmm. control it. Can yes. you, can you talk to me about that a little bit? Oh, yes. This is, this is really a very tender, tender thing for me because uh, I've, I've long been a cook. Okay. I'm a, I'm, I love cooking. I've spent ridiculous amounts of time in the kitchen. I have six children. So cooking is a big part of my life. Uh, And sitting around the table, creating a a fancy gourmet meal for my family and getting all my children and my husband around the table, it has always been one of my joys. Well, now the cooking process is a little more challenging because I've lost most of my taste, I probably have 20 to 30% of my taste left. Mm. And so it's very hard to know how to spice or salt or, or season different things because I don't have great taste. But then when I sit down to eat it with my family, uh, I have to navigate a very high risk of choking. I choke very frequently. Last week, I choked at a speaking event on mm. quinoa, if you can imagine, mm. and it literally blocked my uh, trachea, my air pipe, I could not breathe. And uh, those kind of things happen on a daily basis. And so sitting around the table, not only is there that fear or risk of choking, but I can't talk and eat at the same time. And so what it does is it forces me to choose at every meal. I can either choose to satisfy my hunger, my physical hunger, or I can choose to satisfy my hunger for connection with my family, but I cannot do both. Mm. I either can engage with them or I can eat, but I cannot do both at the same time, which is not only is there the normal shame, humiliation around the fact that I spit and <laughs> I tell people I eat like a toddler, right? So there's, I can't control where all the food goes and sometimes it falls out and it's yeah, super fun. Uh, but on top of that shame, humiliation piece, there's a sense of uh, meals no longer have that sense of community. And satisfaction of body and soul, uh, because it's a minefield for me in every way. It's not safe anymore. No, it's not. Not physically safe, not emotionally safe, not relationally safe. And even though my family or friends or whoever will tell me again and again that they don't care, it's no big deal, Michelle, it's no big deal. The truth is it, it is a big deal to me. And even though it may bother them, it still is a very painful reality for me. And, uh, and I don't know that I'll ever get used to it. Right. It's just something I have to endure three times a day. Do you have some practical tips for myself and for listeners about what we can do specifically perhaps to make those who are struggling to eat more comfortable? Because I don't think we realize how common this issue is, um, at times, you know, from, from damages, whether it's from, uh, issues with the mouth, the jaw, teeth, et cetera, that can make people uncomfortable. What, what can, what practical things can we do to make people feel more comfortable at a table? Well, some of the things that have been specifically helpful for me is people being preemptive. Uh, one of the most painful things is people ignoring my reality. 
So they're afraid to say the wrong thing and they say nothing. That actually is more painful to me than them saying the wrong thing at times. Um, because I have to deal with this reality and I need, I need people that are brave enough to step into this hard space with me, right? Just to let it be what it is and acknowledge it. So people who, uh, let's, for example, because meals can be hard, I've had a couple of really good friends that before a meal, because they're constantly aware of this for me, they will contact me ahead of time and say, hey, what can I prepare? What can I do to make this as easy and enjoyable as possible for you? Uh, and even ask me, what do you need most? What do you need most? How can I best make this as uh, minimally painful for you as possible? Simply being brave enough to ask those kind of questions and then listen and respond when they express a need, listen and respond to it and do everything you can to meet it. Uh, the other thing that's been helpful for me is around the table is people not, you know, friends, family, not being afraid to just say, what's it like for you? Mm. Tell me what it's like for you. I want to hear. Creating that safe space for honesty, mm. for true, honest, heart-to-heart dialogue, that is so rich and soul-filling and satisfying uh, and for me, I'd rather not eat and be able to answer that question. It's that important to me to have a space where I can be heard and understood that uh, if somebody asks me that question, I feel incredibly honored. Wow. Okay. Those are seven powerful words I need to commit to memory. And I think some of our listeners too do, you know, tell me what it's like for you. That is mm-hmm. such a simple, open-ended, non-threatening invitation to enter into that space. Mm-hmm. I, I remember after one of our walks, we were talking about this issue. Um, uh, you know, I moved away and I had a friend who had a really bad accident and her face was smashed and mm-hmm. she lost the feeling above her lip. And so when she ate or drank, she couldn't feel whether the food or the liquid was staying mm-hmm. in her mouth. And we were at dinner one night and I, because of what you shared, I was aware. And I mean, what you're talking about, I've never heard anybody really talk about or share before. And so I gently asked her, can I get you a straw? And instantly she was more comfortable. And Mm -hmm. and when I came back, I I actually got her an extra napkin and winked and just kind of, you know, just said, you know, we're we're just so amazed you're here. We love this time with you going out of our way to affirm. And I think those little acts can make such a huge difference. And even to this day, because of you, we keep straws in our house at all times. And one of the things um, that I so appreciate about you and in, in the way that you write about your journeys in I Am and, I, and Undone is, I mean, not only, I, I mean, you know, I'm a very picky writer, but you are a brilliant wordsmith. Um, but yeah. you, you speak from and you write from this place of depth. You have paid a heavy price um, for the wisdom that you share. And so I, this is the joy cast. And so I want to I just want to ask you, for the listeners who are wondering, how do I find joy in the midst of my suffering? What would you say? (laughs) Oh, goodness. This is, you have to fight for it. I mean, I would love to say it's just a choice. It's just, you do one, two, three. But I, I, I had a friend ask me not long ago, what's the hardest thing for you every day? And I said, the hardest thing for me every day is waking up and choosing to live. Mm. You know, waking up and choosing that I'm not just going to survive, but I'm going to live. And I have to do that over. It's 
it's like when you and I put, you know, tied on our shoes, slapped on our shoes and went for a walk. We had to make a choice for every step. Every step was an effort. Remember that one time right after we both finished treatment. And I mean, we walked so slow. I'm pretty sure there were 90 years. <laughs> We'd like to say that we went on a really long walk, like a distance, but it was just time. We didn't go very far. It just took us forever to get there. That was the best quarter mile of my life. <laughs> exactly. It was two hours and a quarter mile. But we had to literally choose to put one foot in front of the other. And I think joy is like that often too. Uh, it's it's everything from I have to choose where, where I'm going to focus my attention. So I can sit and spend today wondering if I'm going to die or I can spend today deciding how I'm going to live. Mm. You know, those are the choices I have to make. I have no guarantee of a full life. You know, I've had cancer three times. There's no guarantee. So I can sit worrying about whether or not I'm going to die or I can choose how I'm going to live today. Uh, so it's making those kind of choices about my thoughts. It's choosing who I surround myself with. Mm, so good. So good. Uh, I, I'm not going to shut out every person that's difficult or not positive, but I know that I am fighting the battle for positivity every day. So I'm going to limit my time with negative naysayers and I'm going to do everything I can to spend more time with people who know how to be positive. Oh my goodness. One of my favorite practical tools is to do things that make me laugh. Humor mm. is my favorite things. And so I, I watch funny videos. I watch funny movies. I, Pay it. I watch and go to comedians, listening to comedians. I love to laugh and I have a, uh, a sarcastic sense of humor and I'm not afraid to use it. <laughs> but I, humor is a, a, a life preserver for me. And I, if I find a friend who can make me laugh, let me tell you, I follow them around like a puppy because I just can't get enough of people who can make me laugh. Uh, and one of the places to laugh that can be a place of joy, um, even in the midst of challenges and difficult, um, is the table. And one of the things that I am passionate about at the JoyCast is good food uh, because good mm. food and good people is always a good time. And I... um there's a recipe that we always, we would love to give our listeners um, before we conclude. And it's what I want to ask you for is your favorite recipe or dish that you'd be willing to share with us. Oh, well, I have so many recipes. Like I said, I'm a cook, but I chose one to share today because first of all, my youngest son has been begging for it for weeks. So that's a good sign, right? When your 11-year-old is begging for this meal. And then on top of that, it's very easy for us eating challenge people to eat. <laughs> and so in keeping with the spirit of being respectful of people who have challenges around the table, it is honey barbecued meatloaf. Now, let me just say, I have traumatic meatloaf experiences in childhood. <laughs> Me too. Me too. I mean, like, you know, that, that horrible meat conglomeration with too much ketchup and stuffed in a bell pepper and all those weird things that we did growing up. I mean, I, I would have nightmares about meatloaf until I found this recipe for honey barbecue meatloaf. And it has completely 
redeemed my meatloaf experience. Ooh, I cannot I wait to try it. And I bet that's sweet with the honey, with the it's salty. Honey, it's, it's the most moist meatloaf you will ever have. The honey, and you can choose what kind of barbecue sauce you use. I recommend a high, high quality of really good barbecue sauce. But it is fabulous. What I usually do is make about three of them at one time. And then I put the two uncooked ones in the freezer. And I cook one, serve it with really buttery mashed potatoes and roasted Mm. broccoli, cauliflower, something really yummy. But then I have, it's very easy to make in a big bowl. And then I have three meals that are basically ready to go. So I can pull out two more from the freezer at different points when I'm in a hurry. You bake it for about an hour you top it with more barbecue sauce. And I'm telling you, there are never leftovers. It always kind of irks me that everybody eats it all and I don't have leftovers the next day. Um, And good news for all of you listening. We have the full recipe, this magical recipe of Michelle's. And all you need to do is log on to margaretfeinberg.com forward slash joycast, where you're going to find the full recipe and all the show notes and ways to connect with Michelle through our writing, speaking, and more. Michelle, thank you so much for being with us on the Joycast. Thank you, Margaret. And thanks for having a really frank, honest conversation about the hard places. We need more of that. Love you, friend. Love you too. Thanks for listening to this edition of The Joycast. If you've enjoyed today's conversation and you'd like to dive deeper into the unexpected joys awaiting you around your table, check out my new book and Bible study, Taste and See, Discovering God Among Butchers, Bakers, and Fresh Food Makers. These resources will help you savor your life, nourish your friendships, and embark on your greatest faith adventure. You can purchase them at your favorite retailer or margaretfeinbergstore.com. If you do, reach out to me on social media or my website and let me know what you think. Until we meet again, bon appetit and amen.